Today's show is brought to you by A&E's hit series, Bates Motel. Catch the new season when it returns Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian, podcast starting in a second. Listen, if you dig the show, uh, subscribe to it, itunes.com slash the moment. Even if you're listening to it normally in the Slate Daily Feed, the way you can get uh, bonus content, like extra episodes and a more direct connection to the show is itunes.com slash the moment. Subscribe to the podcast there and uh, you will never miss it. Thanks. Show coming up. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm, I'm here with the um, producer of um, the movie that was probably had the biggest influence on our show, Billions, uh, of anything else, and was certainly the thing we measured against. Today's guest is also uh, an actor, and you may know him from, well, from Margin Call, in, in which he acted, or from Old Days from 24, or from Heroes, or most famously as Mr. Spock in the Star Trek movies, Zach Kinto. Quinto. Zachary Quinto. Thank you. How's it going? For being here. Thanks for having me. Zachary or Zach? What do people Zach call you? Zach is good. And Quinto. Quinto, yeah. People don't liquefy the U all the time. How did you not call your production company Liquefied U? Oh, that's a good question. You're thinking on the fly here. I see how this is going to go. Yeah, uh, I mean, that would have been... you is a pretty good one. That would have been an awesome <laughs> production company Great. name. Well, if we ever have a subsidiary or... You yeah, know, that's what you should do. Liquefied you. So, Zach, thanks for being here. We've been, uh, I know your, your schedule's so crazy, so I really appreciate you coming. And, I'm happy and to be this. here. Thanks for having me. I, there's so many different places to start with you because you've done so many different things, and your impact um, on popular culture has been so great in such a short time. I read a few quotes that, that you've, you gave, and one, um, you were talking about um, something that, that happened after a long time, and you said um, that that event reinforces my belief that there are no mistakes in the world. Mm. And, you know, you're also clearly like a highly rational person. And so I wondered like what, whether, what that means to you, like whether for you that's a, about fatalism or is it about like whatever the events are, I'm going to find a way to turn them into something positive or that affects change. I think more the second one. I think now, if you're asking me now, I don't know exactly which one I meant when I said that. Yeah, but um, now. But now, yeah. I feel, I feel, I don't know, fatalism to me is... Um, it's a definitely it's a force and i think there it has a place but i think there's also more fluidity and more more possibility in how we stay open to what we experience and what we encounter and what gets presented to us and um and so i think that i i, I that resonates for me more now are are you conscious of I mean, when when one reads the biography of of your life and and obviously um your dad died when you were mm-hmm. young you found what you describe as a calling which i also want to get into because people I find a lot of people listening to this show struggle with whether their desire to do art is a calling or a whim mm-hmm. or hmm. how they know if they're crazy or not. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's not a bit. So, I mean, do you recall <laughs> what it felt like to you to see this as like a calling? I suppose it happened pretty early. So for me, I didn't have that much to compare it to, right? I felt like I found my way to performing or I found my way to studying acting or I guess, you know, the performing arts, so to speak, as a kid because you're really learning more than one thing and then it and then it hones itself or it finds its its discipline i think a little more clearly i found my way there through happenstance yeah my my dad dying and my family dynamic really shifting dramatically um when i was seven and then 
by the time I was about 10, it emerged as like, oh, I can spend time there. My mom can know where I am while she has to be at work or I'm, I'm looked after, I'm taken care of. And I have this medium in which I can express some of the more intense things emotionally that I'm going through at this time as well. So it it revealed itself in a way that I don't think I had awareness of at the time. It was only later looking back on it that I say, oh, it was an instrumental thing. So it wasn't just about, oh, I, I want to do this for my life. It was about, I think, being protected by it in some way as a kid. Um, and that was where the calling began for me. You mean throwing yourself into it? Mm -hmm. into, was it was it the arts or was it acting specifically the way you felt when you were engaging with the as an actor? Was it the 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 act of performing? Like what was it? Like the guess what I'm asking is was it the disappearing or was it the fact that you could pour yourself into this pursuit? I think it was that. I think that it was that I could I could really invest something in it and and have uh, a sense of self cultivated as a result and supported and nurtured by what I was doing. Does that make sense? You're saying that you found by doing it, by throwing yourself into it, pouring yourself into it, and reflecting back to you mm -hmm. was this new sense mm -hmm. of possibility. Right. Absolutely. As a kid, that was really reaffirming. That was really, um, that spoke to me on a very primitive level and that, that even I could understand at that age. And I was like, oh, okay, then I need to work with this. And then, and then I started to find my way to acting more as I, as I, you know, because as it started, I, I, I ended up auditioning for this kid's group, this kid's like performing group. One of my teachers in third grade um, sent this note home with, with me to my mom, which said, I think he should look at this. I think he should audition based on like my enthusiasm for music class, really. This one woman, this this. It's very, amazing how yeah, one woman, totally, can, a teacher, totally. can do it. So what? Absolutely, yeah, she recognized something. She, she recognized something. you needed something yeah, and saw totally. something great. Yeah, I think she knew. I'd I'd switched schools, and I think you know, as teachers and faculty become aware of new students and their circumstances, and you know, it was a couple of years after my dad had died, and I think there was an awareness of that. You know, that that had made me, in the eyes of my teachers at that age, you know, that there was a sensitivity that they perceived. And a vulnerability, I'm sure, that they perceived that I wasn't aware well, of. Well, you were as a marked kid. in some way. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah, in in a good way, I think, in a nurturing, supportive way. Luckily, because I I went to a good school, and uh, so yeah, she 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 sent this this clipping home with me from the newspaper and a note that said, "I think you should look at this for." So I had never performed. I had never done anything in my life, and my mom took me down to these auditions, and it was like populated with these kids that had been in the. You know, Nutcracker, oh, oh, the like local. professional yeah, kids, totally. Yeah. And, and their moms, and my mom in the waiting room talking, and my mom was like, "Hold, I have no." She, we had no, no frame, frame of reference, reference at all. What contact. town was this? Pittsburgh, yeah, right where I grew up, and um, and I and I got in. Like I, you know, you had to go through these. I think it was two weekends of auditions and dancing and singing. Were and, you an ambitious kid, the kind of person who'd want to do do that? Were you a good student? Then? Uh, yeah, I think I was a good, yeah, I was, I was, I mean, you were bright, was yeah. it hard, was it, was school hard or easy? <clears throat> no, school, I, I, you know, I cultivated, I cultivated an aspect of my personality through school, which was like, whether or not it was true, making people believe that I was cool. Like I have this, I got this, I'm doing good. Like I'm, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you mean appearing competent? Yes, exactly. Was important. That totally. somehow that was important to you? Somehow. Yeah. I think, I, huh. I think because. For me, the process of losing my dad heightened my observational capacity because I, I, I looked at adults around me to see how to process that. 
So I think I, I think I kind of then aspired to more adult-like qualities in myself as a child, and uh, and one of them was learning from watching and and kind of appropriating certain behavioral characteristics sure. to convey my own well-being right to 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 make people feel like i'm okay like for some reason that you was... felt like some response i mean it's, a, it's right. almost like a the gift of the damaged child thing mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. where was that alice miller or uh, something yes the the drama the, the drama the gifted child. child that you felt oh i have to i have to be the i mean they're the heroic one but you i have to somehow make this okay for people yeah right i have to take care of myself quietly and efficiently and to a degree that other people are are made to feel like I'm okay. Yeah, it's interesting because acting can be such a selfish profession in a way, right? Where where you you want this stuff for yourself, and mm-hmm. yet for you, it seems like all always in your stuff, it's like there's a an aspect of giving. Mm, interesting in, mm. involved in it, like you were doing it not just for you. Mm, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, that's a different part of the conversation. That's later, right? I think. Yeah, sure. Having just like perspective. From then till now. Well, yeah, but when, so when you were there yeah. at that time, even as this stuff was going on, I'm wondering if you were aware, were you aware that you were doing this sort of like, I'm going to be, uh, present myself in a way that makes things easier for everyone around no, me? You I were wasn't just doing aware of it. it. Yes. Ah, oh, sad. <laughs> well, sure. Because it's hard, you know, when you have to, when something like that happens, right? Cataclysmic like that. Mm-hmm. It breaks in a couple different ways. For sure, yeah. And that's just one of them. I mean, you know what I mean? There's many different aspects of how it shaped the person that I became or the person that I unwittingly became. And that might not I might not have become had my father lived for a number of reasons. For Who knows, you know? Huh. I mean, it's something I hadn't thought of until you started talking, but not, and we'll tease it out. Maybe it's, it's so or not. But, you know, you often play these characters who have the ability to dispassionately... Mm look at things. Mm-hmm. And there's a core in, in all of them of, uh, there's a core of decency or not mm-hmm. at all. I mean, obviously you've played <laughs> on Heroes, you've played non-decent characters, but if I think yeah. about many of the roles, there is this ability to live in two spots at mm-hmm. once, which it feels to me like you were probably just doing. Yeah, I think that's probably true for part of my life anyway. Yeah. So you wonder if that's part of what attracts you to certain, but you know, when you think about, it's possible that someone who plays Bach wouldn't want to play the character in Margin Call, mm-hmm. right? Because there are certain uh, similarities. Mm. But often artists find themselves drawn yeah, no, to these similar things. Right. I never drew similarities per se when I was doing it. It's funny that you do. I mean, I know that you, I, I, we've always appreciated how much you support that film. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's an analytical, I mean, he's an analyst, so there is that quality of of the character um, that echoes. Spock well, there's that great moment when Jeremy Irons looks at you and asks why a rocket scientist is doing this, right? And you say, "Well, it's it's more lucrative." Yeah, and, for sure. But what happens in that moment in the film to me is like um, we get this whole this moment of you actually looking inside, oh, yeah. figuring out how to answer, deciding to answer honestly. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of stuff. Interesting. It's, well, then I then I think that just has more to do with my sensibility, right? I mean, then then it is how as people slash actors, we gravitate towards certain characters because of the qualities that we embody in our lives, right? I mean, to a certain extent. That's not to say we can't invert those or, you know, subvert those, but but that there is a, a, a natural, especially in film and television, where I think an, an essence has to be present, an essence of 
self, an essence of a person needs to be a part of the character that they're playing because it's such, um, the access is so unfettered. That's really important what you just said. And mm-hmm. so true. Mm-hmm. And it's something you only, I think a lot of the time you only realize as you do this for a long yeah, time. Yeah, that's true. And then I guess some actors find a way to connect that thing no matter how far how many steps away from right. their nature they are. But I think you're almost 100% right that the best, often the best moments are when there's somehow that connection to like the some central part of, of what makes up sort of like the, the, the human. Yeah, you have to be able to connect with it on some some level, some some deep, yeah, quiet level. Because it's almost like I've heard the way you've talked, I've read interviews, the way you've talked about Spock, what you see in him, which is the feelings, the internal life and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I think about the margin call guy, and I bet you you could use all the same, you could use many of the same sort of uh, descriptors, uh-huh. you know, to to connect those things. Um, how how do you, as you're, um, just to jump around a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, I can't even imagine the demands on, on your time because you're, you know, you want to work as an actor as, in the theater because you love it. Mm-hmm. You produce these movies and television shows, and you're a movie star making these gigantic movies. How do you decide for yourself where to spend the capital of your time and energy mm-hmm. and focus? Well, theater-wise, I really made a promise to myself when I came back to do Angels in America, which was in 2010, that I would do a play at least every other season or you know, every year and a half or so. Why? And, um, because it's what I, it's the thing that makes me happiest doing theater, for sure. And it's the thing that challenges me in a, in a totally unique way and deepens my um, my connection to the work. And, and I think my ability to do work in general as an actor, I just think there's something about the integrity that's required to do a, a, a play that's just different. And, it, and it, it's, uh, it's more nourishing creatively for me personally. Uh, so, yeah, so that's why. But can you define the word integrity in that context? What did I say? You said it takes more more integrity <laughs> to do, like what? Wh- well, you got to show up. I mean, you got to show up every day, and it's there's a um, a discipline to it. It seems like for you, maybe it's like honor plus rigor or something. Yeah, actually, I do feel that like way. I mean, there, honesty, it, rigor. Right, you just got to together. You, yeah, and 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 it, it's the it's the one expression that falls to the actor it is the actor's responsibility you know for the for the 90 minutes or two hours or or however long you're there three and a half hours in the case of certain stuff uh angels in america was you know two three and a half hour plays so you, you just you have to you have to maintain and and it is the actor's responsibility solely for that amount of time right and it's certainly the expression of the collaboration the contribution of many other people who've worked up to that point. Right, but at that point, they're handing the baton yeah. to you. Uh, you were saying, as opposed to in movies where the baton's handed to you, but you're really handing it very quickly back to these other yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, you, you, sure, you show up, you give what only you can give for the amount of time that you're there, and then it goes, it's filtered through the process of everything else that happens to that work from that point until the, the picture's locked. And that's many, many, many things, you know, that can define or redefine or shape a performance and extricate something that was never intended yes. by the actor on the day, um, for better or for worse. You know, what I mean, you just you 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 give up your contribution is then yeah you don't done. own it. You can't own. But until the... the final curtain of a play or or a piece of theater, it's being shaped by the actor. You know, all the way up until the very last moment, and that to me is uh, that to me is the is 
bring it back to the calling, that's the thing that ultimately I'm called to. Even even when at 6.30 in the evening when I have to show up to the theater for the you know beginning of the seventh month of a run of the same play that I've been doing, I don't want to necessarily go you know but but i but i do and in the doing is the joy and the discovery and the kinds of lessons that for me are the most powerful ones in my creative process the kinds of lessons you mean that you get as you're playing it take a long time to get to that take a long time and and a lot of a lot of devotion to ritual to get to. You don't get, to, you, they're not easy lessons. Because they're, you mean, are you, are you talking about the lessons of uh, what it takes to feel really alive in the moment? Are you talking about the lessons a character teaches you? Like, wh- uh, I'm which talking con- about all those lessons. All those kinds. Yeah, you're, sure. you're saying pro- lessons as an artist, but lessons as a human. Yeah. Yeah. And so then choosing the plays that you do must be incredibly important. Well, it depends. I mean, it, you know, it depends on what the commitment is that I'm making to the play, I guess, you know, I never, you never necessarily know how long you're going to do something when you sign on to do it. So it, it, it just becomes about a resonance of the material and the production and the trajectory of the production uh, don't factor really into deciding what to do for me as much as the material. The quality of the writing, the challenge it'll be for you to play the part. But I imagine now my guess is you're not just uh, the last piece in, you're you're in early and you're helping to figure out what the rest of that stuff's going to be, right? Sometimes, sure, yeah. I mean, if I can be. Or sometimes I'll come into something that's already formed. It depends. I mean, this play that I'm doing now, I signed on to it before anybody else did. And I read it's it. Called so it's called Smokefall? It's called Smokefall, yeah. And where is it? Uh, it's at the Lucille Lortel Theater on Christopher Street. Uh, it's the MCC Theater Company. And it plays from um, the end of February until? Yeah, I mean, we're in previews now, so we're doing shows now. It opens February 22nd, uh, and it runs until March 20th. Great, so get your tickets. This thing may go up right after it opens, so this podcast oh, okay, right cool. after it opens so yeah. people should go and Come try check to it out. yeah get tickets for totally. scalp tickets totally. but you came into this thing how did you end up in it it's crazy how i got in in this play actually uh i went to brunch i was shooting star trek in vancouver and then we we finished it in dubai and so the third the third, the third one? one yeah and we were shooting there over the summer basically in vancouver and then in the fall uh, we finished and went to dubai so we had 3 days in new york between the two and I'd come home and brought my dogs back and, you know, got checked back into my life here. And over those three days went to brunch with some friends and randomly the wife of Noah Heidel who wrote Smokefall was at brunch with us. And we started talking about how they live in Detroit and she's married to a playwright. And I said, who's your husband? And she said, Noah Heidel. And I had met Noah six or seven years ago set up like by our agents in a general meeting or whatever. And so I hadn't seen him in a long time and we reconnected randomly and he was in town to get this production together. So I said, oh, well, let me, can I read this play? Is there something for me in it? And he said, actually, there is something for you in it. And I took it with me to Dubai, I read it on the plane and I landed and I was like, I have to do this play. Um, there was something about it that was really haunting and profound and interesting to me and poetic. It's beautifully written. So yeah, that's how it happened. It was a very random circumstance. It wasn't like someone sent me a script and asked me So is that it. is that how you how you basically end up picking a whole bunch of stuff? Is it is there that little sort of calculation involved? Sometimes. I do feel sometimes like 
part of my work is to stay open to what presents itself to me. And you mean to not try to manage it aggressively? Right. I mean, or right. There are moments. There are moments at which I think managing and and pre planning and pursuing specific ambitions is very important from a from a career perspective. But from a creative perspective, I feel like as much as you can stay open to what is out there and be specific and know what you want to do, but really trust that it will reveal itself, then things like this happen and experiences present themselves that you you wouldn't necessarily have foreseen. Leaving yourself open takes a tremendous amount of discipline, Mm. I think, Mm -hmm. to not just want to fill your dance card Mm -hmm. all the time. Because it seems like to me, like there's always pressure coming from the business side of Hollywood, hey, Zach, we can, you know, we can get you X if you'll go do three weeks on this big uh, thing. Mm -hmm. Do you sort of set out in advance to the people you work with? Like, there are times I'm open to that stuff. There are times I'm not. Or do you get it all presented to you and then uh, are just willing to say no a lot? Mm. I think it's a balance of those things. I think people that, that I work with are all people that know and support my desire to come back to this kind of experience that I'm having right now that it's balanced and that's what I mean like sometimes I have to look ahead oftentimes to say I have a window here where it makes sense to do a play and I, and I was coming up on that window anyway when Smokefall presented itself to me and and I and I knew that if I didn't seize the opportunity I, I couldn't guarantee that I would have it again soon so it's like also to honor that commitment I made to myself to do it and to do it this often this was the this was the iteration of that that made sense right now I mean, I think it's really, like, wonderful that you made that kind of commitment to yourself. Well, I feel like... It's hard. I feel like there were a lot of years where I didn't keep that commitment to myself, where I didn't do theater because I was in L.A. And I did, I did, I gave it the old, you know, I did some theater in L.A. early days. And it was gratifying. And, and we put stuff up ourselves and had, like, a little theater company and did new plays and did new work. And But, you know, it's just a totally different culture there for theater. It doesn't really exist anywhere near the same way it exists here. So there were probably about six or seven years where I just didn't do it at all um, as I started working more and, and then when you television. did Angels, you realized like, ah, wait, none of that. That was the thing that I had in my long view, the kind of experience I wanted. I had never done a play in New York before. I didn't want it to be some kind of splashy, like two-hander on Broadway where all the pressure was on the success of the production. I wanted it to be... Uh, well, you picked a play where the writer's the star, no matter on, what, no yeah, matter who's totally. in it or what it is. Absolutely, Tony Kushner's the star of Angels yeah, in America. Absolutely, and it's a and it's a tightly woven ensemble. It was like it was the perfect, you know, and it was on Eleventh Avenue. It was like a perfect combination for me to kind of come back and do that, you know. Um, and and then once that happened, I knew I had to keep it up. On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Bates Motel reopens on A&E for its fourth season. A modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho, Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norma and Norman suspicious of one another and their trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as the season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy, and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune into Bates Motel Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. So you, when you were figuring out where you were going to go to college as an actor, you, know, you knew you were going to be an actor. 
you went to Carnegie Mellon, so you hadn't left Pittsburgh. I'm just thinking, like, you hadn't left Pittsburgh, right. really, right? Right. Um, right. No, actually, yeah, that's pretty true. I mean... You might have... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you traveled. But, but I mean, and did you think to yourself by that point, you, did you get in? Were you in the acting directing program at Carnegie Mellon? Uh, I was in the acting. You were in the I acting, in the which mu- is like... I was in the musical theater program, actually. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Little known facts, I guess. I don't know if really people understand how serious that place is about the arts, but it's one of the most serious places. It's a serious school. I, w- I had the advantage of growing up in Pittsburgh and knowing, having seen productions there and kind of knowing teachers that were on the faculty and knowing other kids that went there ahead of me. I auditioned at other schools outside of Pittsburgh and got into other places and chose to to go to Carnegie because of its reputation and, the, you know, the, the degree... It was, I don't know, it's just like one of the best schools in my backyard. It, it kind of made sense for me to stay there. Was there any sense when you were going there of, um, did you have any, you know, you come across in, in interviews and in life in a good way self-possessed of confidence, you know, like you're a confident person. Mm. When you were then going to go out of high school and go to this conservatory kind of program, were you confident that, that you were good? My mom's one, one you know, when I when I said I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to pursue this for school, for college, because that was a pretty big conversation in my family, I don't think that it was ever seen as something to go to school for, necessarily. My mom had some designs on my... Dr. Quinto? Yeah, more, more like, I think, lawyer vibes. Barrister sort Quinto? Of, sort of of the, you know, of the same ilk in a way. Yeah, sure. Um, so... Uh, so I had to I had to work a little bit and she took me to this voice teacher in Pittsburgh and she was like I want you to work with him and I want you to tell me that he can do this like that he's good enough to like make a go at this in a professional way. Um I was probably about 16 or 17 I would say. So by 16 you're saying to your mom, yeah. "Hey, I I'm going to go to school for this. I'm, I'm going to go to become college an actor. For this. I'm yeah. going to do theater." And by that time I had studied in you know outside of school but like in a Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera had this school for them. I mean, there's actually a pretty, historically, there's a pretty rich culture of the arts in in education and in, you know, youth programs and stuff in Pittsburgh in a professional way or, you know, so. I, I realize I got to show you this thing. Uh, this There's this female director. There's a director named Charlotte Glynn from Pittsburgh, mm. and she made the best short I've seen like in the last four years oh, and it's cool. about Pittsburgh oh, and I, cool. I, I'm going to send you a link Please right after do. this. I would love to yeah, watch sh- it. You will freak out. She's so Great. gifted. That's cool. Um, and it's real. It's like the most Pittsburghy thing mm-hmm, like you've ever mm-hmm. seen. But so you're, you, you go, your mother says, I want you to go to yeah. this thing. Yeah. So I just started working with this guy, taking lessons and, and he was evaluating my progress and reporting it. And, and at a certain point was like, yeah, I mean, I think this is, there's, there's legitimacy here for, for him to, pursue it, you know, and, and that was echoed by the other teachers that I had. So I, I had a, a sort of range of people being like, yeah, go for it. See what Were happens. Were you thinking at the time, like, did you allow yourself to think beyond, oh, I'm going to go become a working theater actor? Like, did you think I'm going to, I'm going to be a famous person? I'm going to be a movie star? Like what, like sort of what dreams did you allow yourself hmm. to have? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think I, I think I probably, I definitely saw myself working in different ways in theater and film. I was I was very interested in film as a young kid and, and acting in film. I was very inspired by the generation of actors like, you know, the 70s sort of vibes. Like, 
Al Pacino. Well, I've heard you reference John Cazale. Like John Cazale, yeah. So I you mean, noticed John Cazale. Like you're the kind of, you were the kind of person who studied this yeah. stuff in a way where you were like... I was obsessed with that That stuff. guy, John yeah. Cazale, who is like, how is that guy in five movies in there... He's the best thing, and yeah, and all, and, and but just all, all, all of everybody at that time, and how they were making work. It was so inspiring to me. I felt really like drawn into that, and for sure. So I did notice that kind of stuff, and and I and I felt connected to it as I was learning the other thing, which was theater. You know, and that's how that was the the filter through which I learned was was on stage. And was learning always kind of, like I I read this other thing that you said where you talked about um. It's always been a primary goal to understand myself and the world around me in an intellectual way. Mm. And we all go through, like, um, phases of that. But, but um, you know, the fact that you say, like, it's, it's always been a primary goal to understand myself and the world around me. It's an incredibly great organizing principle. Mm. And, and was that the case even, even as a young person? And then how do you kind of bring yourself back around to it now? I think in, in the world moves so fast as we, as we get older it can become hard mm-hmm. like to actually do the check-in like i do morning pages every day i do, yeah, you do. yeah and meditate like I, but mm-hmm. but still right it, it can run away from you for sure how do you it's a good point actually um how do i what what's the question well how do you how do you actually so that's a great goal like mm-hmm. did you always like it sounds like even when you were 16 and 17 you were sort of doing some version of this i mean i definitely yeah i i, I had a teacher in high school who really encouraged journaling so I was definitely putting my thoughts places. I have stacks of journals from my youth that I that I still don't know exactly what to do with. Um, ultimately, I think therapy has been a huge pot stir for me in that regard. You know, like reminding myself, bringing myself back to that notion. Um, well, because I guess what that's talking about in a way is not just being reactive. Like mm-hmm. so, like right. The often the the moments where we get ourselves into trouble are when we're reactive. Yeah. As opposed to when we're like thoughtful, constructive, making a choice in terms of how we I've really strengthened act. internally myself this voice that is like constantly I don't know how to describe it. It's just I can really engage myself when I'm when I feel pulled toward that reaction, right? I can really engage myself and and hold the experience rather than plunging into it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I mean, what's that's interesting is how you can do uh, Like, Yes, I believe that you can. Did you train yourself to? Yes, or, or did I it did. happen the moment your father died and you realized no, no. something shifted mm-hmm. in you? No, this is like years, I would say, of, of self-examination and work and, and diving in and realizing that, like, what am I serving here? Because what do you want to be serving? Me personally, I want to be serving truth in myself and in how I relate to the world, I think, above all. That, to me, seems to be at least what I try to work toward. Yeah, because it seems like a battle for all of us, certainly for me, is like um, sort of the ease with which we can just kind of disappear into our days can sometimes take us over. Mm. Well, especially and, in New York, right? Yeah, well... I felt like my life was more balanced in L.A., naturally. Is that is that strange? Yeah, I feel the... I mean, no, it's not strange if that's your experience. Right, but, you feel the opposite way. I just uh, made more time for my well-being in L.A., Oh, yes, sure, because the world, it, it, it's set up for that. But totally. for me here, walking around is the yeah. ultimate wake up. Because what, what I'm talking about is like waking ourselves up. Sure. The idea that that you want to live as fully awake as you can mm-hmm. so that you're not sleepwalking through right. stuff. Right. We all have it as a goal, but it seems like you actually force it on yourself. 
Sure. What's the first, like, oh, this is a great question that my friend Tim Ferriss asks people on mm. his podcast, mm-hmm. and Tim's brilliant at this stuff, which is like, what's the first hour of your day look like? Is it important, the first hour? Is Do you get yourself aligned at the beginning of the day? Do you have a routine? I think the first hour, the routine of the first hour of my day is often built around my dogs, taking care of business with them, mostly getting them out of the house, getting them fed. That's certainly the first 25 minutes of my day. Um, the first thing I do when I get up. And then I think it's about, I'm not a morning person, so oftentimes I find myself getting up and going to places relatively soon after I've gotten up. I don't really give myself like... You don't give yourself a cushion or something. I mean, I give myself enough of a cushion to not... I'm pretty punctual. I give myself enough of a cushion to be on time, but I I don't like get up and read the paper or... Meditate or no, journal then. Not in the morning. So how does that, when is the check-in time with um, yourself? I would say like after my day, actually, for oh, me. Oh, so you're an end of the day reflecting on the not day. At, not, not before bed, but like at the end of my day, but before my night. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Is That's that what, like yeah. a coffee or tea time for yes. people sometimes. Yeah. And you'll find a way to to sort of protect that so you have, what, an hour where you can yeah. decompress? I just, I, yeah. And, and in the city, it usually means coming home. To me, that is that is where it, I don't think it can happen for me if I'm not at home. Right. So I come home. I come home from rehearsal. I come home from, you know, if I can build my day. But the other thing is my schedule can also be really unpredictable and erratic. And so I also have to find other things to do when I'm places, when I'm well, on location. Well, yeah, when, when, you're on, when you're on a, a shoot, that that's one of the questions I had written down to ask you, which was like, Often actors, especially top or toward the top of the call sheet actors, you know, you're in such a bubble when you're on a set, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are people telling you where to go. They're clearing a path for you everywhere you go. They're bringing you food when you want it. And Mm. it's easy to just sort of surf that, I think. Yeah, I guess so. No, I don't. Yeah, how do you not surf? I've just never been interested. It's weird. I I wonder sometimes, like, should I be more interested in that in my life? Like, I, I really... I say as it goes, I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm pretty low-key, low-maintenance. Like, sometimes I feel like I should turn it up a notch or something. But I don't. It's just I don't, you know. I feel like the only paparazzi pictures you see of me are picking up dog shit. Seriously. Like, that's <laughs> what I do. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? I walk my dogs. I I take the train when I can, although it's gotten a little bit more, you know. I just, I try to, like, just be out there. And then, but then when you're on set, do you use your time? Like, very few actors, I think, they have a lot of downtime. Like, so uh-huh. an actor... Like, you know, maybe you'll be actually acting on a 12-hour day for an hour and a sure. half of that 12-hour yeah, day. Maybe. So you have all this other time. Right. But you can't leave, so... No, you can't leave. <laughs> no, which I don't know if everyone understands that, you know, because they're, we're all resetting stuff so that, you know, you'll come out and do your thing. <laughs> right. And then you go back to the thing and we're yeah. all resetting and <laughs> right. changing things and then you come back out. So how did you, did you realize at a certain point, is that part of how the producing and all the rest of us, did you realize at a certain point, wait, I have this downtime, I'm going to, I'm going to be productive with it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the most direct example of that is that I started playing the banjo and I, and I started doing that because I wasn't using my time on set as productively as I could. It's hard for me, producing is a sort of long game all the time thing that's happening and conversations can happen intermittently as you well know uh yeah that's that's not something that like when i go off set and into my trailer 
I could do from the moment I get in there till the moment I leave, even if I wanted to. I mean, I guess if I was really hustling and rolling calls, I could do. But but for me, it was about giving, and, and I can't really immerse myself in something else while I'm on set as easily. Like, I can't, I hate reading a book on set because you never know how far you're going to get before they call you back. Right. And then you have to actually switch yeah, those. You have to actually, yeah. whatever your process is to then become the... Right. It's like why people knit and stuff like that, because you can do it and it's like productive, but also distracting. It's it's not something that requires... Like, oh, you can put it down and then pick it back up and start where you left off easily. And with like a book or you know, reading other things or like working on stuff, I don't feel like I can be 100% available to that. So when you're on set for the day, you're pretty much focused on playing that part and yeah, doing that being thing. in that experience, sure. Yes. I don't, it's weird. Like, I don't even think about what else, you know, when I'm on set, it's just like where I am. Or when I'm in rehearsal, it's just where I am. Whereas if you're out sometimes or you're not necessarily as immersed in something, you might be like, oh, I could be here. Or right. Be you're saying out. you're really present when you're there. Yeah, for sure. And you're like, if you're there and you're playing a character, you're not, you're not carrying the character with you the right. whole time. But I'm available to the experience. That yeah. you are, you're connected. You're 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 more connect. You're more leaning in that direction than you are leaning away well, yeah. from it. Sure. Yeah. I guess it's interesting. I had this question, but it's sort of like the the positive or the negative or the negative. Like the other, the flip side of it, which was I was going to say, like, what do you do to turn out to kind of turn out all the noise and everything that's coming at you to stay open and mm-hmm. not closed off as an artist? Well, I just uh, I'm just getting a place upstate outside of the city. I I, I felt like. In New York, it's a very different experience, and that's what I meant about L.A., which is, like, I built time in my in my life in L.A. to get in my car and drive 30 minutes and go for a hike with my dogs and go take a yoga class because it's built—the energy of the city is built around that kind of flexibility, and the geography of that place allows for it. You know, you can 30 minutes in your car be at the beach, be in the mountains, be, uh, you know, in the desert, wherever you want to be— you can be there, and and yeah. it's all of a sudden a totally different experience. That's much harder to cultivate here in the city, and I feel just as an urban creature and where, like, my energy is amplified to its sort of highest potential. It's in an environment like this, for sure, like you like you said, but, but, it, but it can be distracting, and I think I've gotten a little bit farther away from that stuff that you're talking about, which is really carving out time. Well, yeah, you'd have to, to want to you know, have a primary goal to understand yourself in the world in an intellectual way. Yeah. There's no way if you don't find a way to separate. Right. Well, but it's interesting, intellectual versus, um, you know, integrated, right? Like, that's the difference. You can you Well, you can have the intellectual understanding, but then you have to integrate the exactly. lessons. Exactly. Yeah, that's why, like, um, one of the big benefits of meditation, regular meditation, mm-hmm. is that in the afternoon, no matter what, you have to... You have to reckon with, if you don't do it or if you do it, you kind of have to reckon with, this is the moment I'm supposed to break the day off mm-hmm. for 20 minutes. And is that when you do it in the oh, afternoon? Oh, you got to do it, tw- you know, if you I do, do TM, so oh, I do twice do. a day. But even if I'm on set and it's crazy and I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't do the second one. I never miss the first one, but sometimes I don't so do the, the second one. the first one's in the morning, first thing First thing, when thing I up. do when I wake up. Right. Yeah. I've done, I've done um, part of the artist's way. I didn't do the whole thing. But that was years and years ago. So I did those more. Well, you're an active, ar- I mean, you're an artist. It work like it's all working for you. So unless there's, I mean, do you feel like you're not living it oh, fully? I see what you're saying. No, uh, that, like, like that being the purpose of the artist way, you mean to break through things? Well, that... to keep, ch- I, like for me, it's the check-in. So like when I knew you did the ayahuasca, I have 
the ayahuasca terrifies me. I've had mm. friends describe the whole thing. And, but I, I know in my life, like when things feel like they're just moving too quickly and I can't stop and look, knowing that I do morning pages and meditating, at least it's like little stops in the day to go, what's underneath that's bubbling? What am yeah. I keeping? Because like, we all keep that shit. Yeah. You know, you keep that for shit sure. tamped down. For sure. And then if it's tamped down for too long. Yeah, man, it turns into all kinds of craziness. So you did it in this very, uh, the ayahuasca thing. Yeah. When did you do that? I've done it a bunch. Can you um, explain what it is just so people... Ayahuasca is, um, yes, it's a plant medicine. It is indigenous to the jungles of South America. Peru is where I went, but it also exists in Brazil and, you know, just the region there. Um, it's actually the mixture of two plants. One is the ayahuasca vine, which grows in the jungle. The other is actually a mountain plant, a shrub that grows in the mountains called chacruna. Uh, the leaves of the chacruna plant contain dimethyltryptyline, DMT, which is naturally occurring chemical in our brains, which is only released the moment we were born, the moment when we die. And otherwise our body has enzymes that suppress it if we ingest it. So what happens when you mix the chacruna leaf with the ayahuasca vine is that it suppresses those enzymes when you ingest it. So it actually allows the DMT to, it's the physiological explanation of it. It, it allows the DMT to pass through the blood-brain barrier. And as a result, you have primarily hallucinatory experience, but it's accompanied with this other kind of, um, that's where it gets a little spiritual, a little bit more esoteric or difficult to talk about because it becomes something else. And, and it's always done in ceremony with, shamans and chanting the whole time uh, the singing yeah it's a very ritualized process the way it's been described to me though i mean by a friend of mine who's done a lot of drugs and who says he really refers to this as medicine Medicine. as you do yeah and i know that's how they all talk about it but also it does seem like my friend has tripped a million times you know done a lot of drugs sure but viewed it as like just an incredibly therapeutic yeah there's some there's, experience. Yeah. What was therapeutic? What? Something very healing about the spirit of the plants. It, it, it's um, is it it's, terrifying? Also, it can be. It certainly can be. You 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 were taken to play. What brought me to the work with medicine was yeah. Why'd you want to do it? I was doing Angels in America, and I was uh, I was holding on to aspects of this character that I was playing, Lewis, who is an incredibly bound, tightly tightly wound, self hating, really difficult challenging person and I was just at a point in my own life where where I felt like I was holding on to shit I needed to break through something that I you know I, I go to a lot of I do a lot of therapy and I and I really love it and learn from it but but I felt like there was something that I wasn't you couldn't able get to the other to side of pass it. through something was like deeply rooted in me in my experience and I found my way to it through a friend and then I did a lot of research and found this place in Peru and went down there and was there for I was there for about a month, not at this place, but in Peru. I was at the retreat center for two weeks, and the first time I went. But I've been back a bunch, and you know, it's something that is a part of my life and will be for sure. And you get something new out of it every time. Oh yeah, time. every time. I mean, people, I've I, I've read though that it, it can be quite dangerous if you don't do everything the way that um, you're supposed to ahead of time. Get yourself on the right. There's a preparatory regiment that yes, you you know you you have to adhere to. There's certain restrictions and guidelines in diet and behavior in the weeks leading up to it. Which you do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to. Uh, as much for the spiritual side of it as for the physical side of it. I mean, there are a couple of things, like you can't be on any kind of SSRI uptake inhibitors or any kind of antidepressants. You know, prescriptions become a little bit uh, crucial to examine and to look at. 
But other than that, it's dietary, and with the exception of like a couple of things that can be, you could get sick, but right. it's not You're really the supposed to be celibate kind of for a certain amount of time Yeah, no sex or sexual release of any kind, no alcohol, no marijuana, the, you know, no drugs. So you get yourself in a place that's ready to sort of transcend yeah, in some to way. To be open to a deeper uh, examination than you would have in your everyday life. And immediately it paid dividends for you? Did you come out of it a different, like different or having... I don't think accepting of it, certain parts of your yes, definitely accepting certain aspects of myself and and forgiving certain aspects of myself, letting things go that I had been carrying for a long time. Absolutely, that process. So it's it was an accelerant to you, like those are things that happen through therapy, but somehow yeah. it, it or can happen through kinds of modalities of therapy, mm-hmm. but somehow it accelerated that. Yeah, that and that I don't stuff. I don't think of it as coming out of the experience as a different person by any means, you know, and there were things that I didn't let go of and things that I'm still holding on to and, you know, that's that's part of it is that it it doesn't fix you. It doesn't eradicate all of your struggles or challenges, but it enhances your understanding of maybe what leads you to some of that stuff or what keeps bringing things up in your path. I want I want to ask you a, a craft question that ties into this, which is it, it's clear you spend a lot of time to understand the whole bundle of stuff that makes up Zach Quinto, mm. how you think, you, what your internal life is, where your limitations are, where your strengths are. It's, it's clear that you're like doing that work, mm. like in a, not in a self-absorbed way, but in like a useful uh-huh. way. Nice. Do you do that? Like I'm thinking about you playing Glenn Greenwald and Snowden, mm-hmm. which I can't, you got to invite me to a screen. Okay, sure. I have to come. I have to, I'm excited to see it myself. But, um, you know, I, I like to me, he's such a, a fascinating character yeah like it's very easy to make moral judgments right one way or another about him and why he did what he did right i think i could you could spend years trying to really figure it all out sure what's the process by which you three-dimensionalize uh, a character like mm-hmm. how do you from the moment you're reading it for the first time what's the thing that you do to figure out who this is and how to play him i guess it's different for everything um depending on the nature of the material and the responsibility that I have to play the character. Glenn's obviously a real person who's very prolific and... And done heroic. I mean, done yeah, an unquestionably well. could done heroic action. <laughs> sure. So there was a certain responsibility that I had to honor that. I mean, I talked to Oliver a lot about what he wanted this portion of the film to be, the way the film is structured, how the storyline of Laura and Glenn uh, and Ewan fits into the overall context of the film was one conversation I had that that sort of defined a little bit of my preparation. You mean you wanted to know filmmaker-wise how uh, Oliver wanted to use it? No, no. Obviously, I knew because I read the script. Well, yeah. so I knew how he was using it. But, I mean, to say, like, w- to what degree we're trying to recreate these people, to capture uh, their essence, yeah. to do, you know, um, and to understand that, you know, he wanted us to bring our own sensibilities to bear in playing these people, which is always a very interesting concept when you're playing a real person i was keen to connect with glenn actually but that did didn't, you no it didn't it didn't work out have you still not no i still haven't randomly we were both guests on uh, bill maher uh this was years ago before i had any awareness of this um project obviously it was before any of this happened but um, so you shook his hand that night Yeah, like we met that night but we've never subsequently you haven't you didn't you decided not to email him well, I was, uh, you know, I was, 
in deference to Oliver, I was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a situation with that, with him. Uh, I understand. Oliver, I love Oliver, but I just wanted to kind of honor my filmmaker who was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work it out or I'll connect you guys. And then it just and then never that didn't happen. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you talked I to Oliver about up. that mm-hmm. and then what other, like, do you have to make a judgment about motivation? I mean, to a certain extent, but I feel like I understood the point of view of the film and I understand, I, I mean, and I, and I agree with it, you know? So then it was about, yeah, I mean, then, it, then in this case, I felt like it was really about serving the story. You know, it wasn't, I think I would, if I was playing Snowden, if if it was, you know, I think it's a different process if you're immersing yourself in telling the story of the person or if you're immersing yourself in telling the story of a player in that other person. Right, story. so you can actually step back and it's a film, it's a, a, very, a sort of a filmmaker's approach in a way. Mm-hmm. You're stepping back and you're going like, how's this serving the story that totally. Oliver Stone is telling about totally. Edward Snowden? Totally. And then how can I add texture to this character in a way that will serve that? That was the great, that was the great thing was, you know, we came in wow, at the end Wow, that's of, hard. Well, we came in at the end of the film, so they had already been shooting, you know, all the other aspects of that story. And who plays Lara? Uh, Melissa Leo. Wow. And Tom Wilkinson plays Ewan McCaskill. Right. So we, and Joe, of, of course, Gordon Levitt plays Snowden. So it was us in a room for for 12 days with Oliver and, you know, really the set, it was very contained and it became very clear what story we were telling and that was exciting. It was really, it was really cool. And and also like, Melissa had a camera, you know, like the, the aspect of the, the meta quality of being in a movie about people who made a movie about this thing that was happening while they were doing it all. There was an, an, an energy So that to felt that, exciting that. to you to like sort of throw yourself into that the very more than three dimensional. Well, yeah. Also, we were shooting at the at the Mira Hotel in Hong Kong, where it happened. You know, we were shooting in the same place where it all went down. Yeah, I mean, if people was, haven't seen the documentary, should you watch the documentary first? Do you think? If you if you you know to see Snowden, um, well, the, the interesting thing about it is, yes, I would say so, of course, because first of all, you, I think that's an awesome movie. Um, it really is. It's really cool. Yeah, there's it's it's such an interesting. It's there's so much. It's crazy how many levels this all happens on. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Just anyway. No, no. We'll go further. The, what do you I mean? Just the whole fucking thing is so. Nuts. You mean the actual thing? Yes. The whole the the whole scenario, the whole story, the whole the the magnitude of it. What happened in that hotel? You know, just what they were all going through with it. Did mean, you make a decision that you knew? That the whole world was basically going to be turned upside down by what you guys were doing in that hotel room? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that there was a a very clear ambition to, you know, magnify this, to hold this up and to, and to reflect it back to society, to, to have them do with it what they will. I mean, I think it was the goal. It's interesting. Anyone who's ever, like, become successful as an artist has had that moment where you're alone in a room thinking about this thing. Mm. And nobody else knows, and it's this secret you have. Mm. Whether it's the secret of the beginning of a movie, you know, you mm-hmm. and you and JC Chandler are sitting there talking about making margin call. I could have had. I want. I, did you have any idea that this like little thing you guys are going to shoot in twelve days would have the kind of seismic impact it did? I think it was seventeen days. I do think. I it like was, thinking about I, it. It's five. Yeah, sure, sure. You guys made this movie in five days. Sure. No, there's no. Uh... There's no way to know that. Um, for the filmmaker out there, and we'll wrap this up soon, but so for the filmmaker who's listening to this, who's like a, a young writer-director, what can you tell her about what it was about that, about, like, so Jay-Z was a guy who'd been around forever. By the way, you have to introduce me to him so I can have him on the podcast, but <laughs> he, he was a guy who'd been around making commercials, hasn't been able, hadn't been able to do it. What was it that made you know 
this thing is great and worth my time and I'm going to find a way to help this kid get his movie. Like It was the script. It was literally just the thing just stood sure, out. Yeah. I mean, we had been looking for a project that reflected us as producers and me as an actor. And, you know, we, we had been looking actively for something to work on to get behind as a company. And, you know, we didn't really have any idea what we were doing when we started our company, per se. I mean, we kind of had an idea. Yeah. But, you know, we had never done it before. My business partner, Neil Dodson, had worked with, for a producer for a few years, you know, assisted this guy for like four or five years in L.A. But, you know, this was us striking out in a way. We were you know, on our own now to say like, okay, what what are we going to do? So we we met JC randomly. I mean, it was like a mutual friend of JC and Neil's introduced them. And I was, we were all in LA and Neil called me on the phone and said, I just met this guy. He seems really cool. Before you'd before read. Before we had read the script. Wow. He was like, I need you to come meet this guy before he gets on the plane to go back to New York. And I was like, Neil, like, I was in my car, I was driving home from the vet, I remember. And uh, there was horrible traffic on the 101, and they were at the Grove. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just I'll swing by on my way. I'm passing the exit, whatever. So I went and met JC, and he was super cool and very confident and chill and affable and, you know, told us a little bit about the project and sounded interesting. And we read it that night, and um, Neil and our other producing partner at the time, Corey, and, and, and we all got on the phone the next day, and we are like, this is exactly what we wanted so it, it, we found each other at the right exact moment where, like, our desires and designs and ambitions... Dovetailed with his. Dovetailed perfectly with his, and the timing was perfect. And, and then did you fit. use your Rolodex to go put that cast together, to stack that cast in that way? Eventually, that was, like, the beginning of... It wasn't that long a process. I think it was about two and a half years between when we met JC and when we... I love you saying it wasn't that long a process. Two and a half years... From when you read yeah, that you, script. I mean, you always hear people that are like, I, 10 years I worked to get this movie made. And... But no, it's important. People complain when they can't. People complain to me like if they finished a script and they've sent it out for three months and nothing's happened. So you kept going for two and a half years and you didn't doubt that you could get it made? No, it was just the process and the amount of time that it takes to get shit done. No, I didn't. I never doubted it. We, we, that was our thing. We picked that project. We got behind that project and we just started taking meetings, you know, with financiers mostly. And it's that dance that you have to do when you're putting together an independent film, which is you have to make financiers believe that there are impressive actors interested in the material while at the same time making interesting <laughs> actors believe that there's money behind the project. I think that's in Christine Vachon's book. Her book's great. Um, Her first one's really good. Yes. And so that dance began and took two years before we found the guy that was like, yeah, I'll put money up to make this movie. And then and then the cast came together through that. And yes, I definitely feel like as a producer, the thing that I, like I will reach out directly to people and have conversations with agents and be a part of that process because that's the thing that I think I, you know, bring access is one of the things that I bring to the table as a producer. Yeah, I mean, you and I met that way because you're putting a movie together and um, we're, and it was a great moment of producing on your part because there were all these, there, like a lot of agents and people in between were trying to have a conversation between the two of us. Mm -hmm. And then you just emailed me, like, should we mm -hmm. just figure this mm -hmm. out ourselves? Mm -hmm. And we cut, we cut everybody, <laughs> we cut through the whole process in a way, and, and I remember thinking, oh, that's a real producer's mm. That's you know, nice. That's a but real that's, producer's yeah, that's the move. way that I can be involved, and I like to be involved, actually. Because then I'm, I don't know, I just, I feel like it defines the style 
of how we make movies. Yes, it's like, hey, I'm not going to bother with all these this stuff. We're going to get the bullshit out of it. Can this thing happen? Can we help each other? Yeah. Is there a way to do it? It's a, it's a, Simultaneously, I feel like it's a miracle that films ever get made or television. I mean, it's a miracle that that things get made and that as many things that are as good as they are get made is is even more unfathomable. But at the same time, I feel like once you get down to brass tacks, the process of filmmaking is pretty straightforward. And I, I believe that it can be done in a way which is timely, efficient, cost-effective, and enjoyable. And everybody is incentivized and motivated to contribute the absolute best that they have to give. That's how I think it can and should be done all the time. I don't understand why it's ever anything else. Well, because humans get in the I way. I guess so, but like intelligent humans that know what they're doing and have the capacity to tell stories and organize and, and relate to other human beings with ease and respect, it, you know, that, 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 I don't know. I guess that that's where you diverge because that's like not always the people that get involved in showbiz, eh? No, it's not. I mean, I was going to say this is all spoken very well. <laughs> so like, we haven't, bit, we haven't talked idealistic. about Star Trek at all, but Fair that was enough. all just like as though uh, uh, Mr. Spock were here <laughs> explaining like why it should all, well, of course it should all work because logically and rationally, Fair we enough. should all be able to do this stuff. Um, all right, last thing. Uh, it's one more Tim Ferriss question, which I never ask his questions, but yeah. this is one of my favorite things, which is what three books would you say you've given away the most? Given away? Yeah, like, like to given to people, people. Like, yeah. Wow. Like, I could say, I know mine are like um, City of Thieves, uh-huh. uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, and Franny and Zoe, let's okay. say. What would be like the be um, three if there aren't three? I'd say I, I recently gave away Jitterbug Perfume for someone who hadn't read that. I was excited to share that, pass that on. I haven't read that. Really? Yeah. Tom Robbins? No, I haven't read it. I've only read the one with the big thumb. Oh, it's real good. What's the thumb one? It's not uh, not the cow. Even cowgirls get the blues, is it? Yeah, is I it think it is. Even cowgirls get the blues. Um, so that book, Jitterbug Perfume. Jitterbug Perfume is a great Tom Robbins novel. All right. Um, so I'll give you that. Uh, is there a second one? That's a good one. Yeah, let me think. I've definitely given away Just Kids as a gift. Oh, awesome! That's awesome. I haven't read M Train yet. I have it. I got I got it as a gift for Christmas, and I've yet to read it. I just heard a great discussion of. Um, horses on the podcast uh-huh. sound opinions oh really they got go track by track and talk about everything that was going on when mm-hmm. she made that album mm-hmm. that's pretty cool just kids is fantastic it's really fantastic. all right those are good let's see you have one more uh i would say the year of magical thinking joan didion that book is huge in my family is it my wife is it my wife that book means a, a, yeah. a ton to her yes the thumb was uh, even cowgirls get the blues. all right those are three Really excellent choices. All right, I'm glad to. All right, Zach Quinto, thank you so much thank for coming you, and doing this and on your Happy day off from here. theater. Thanks uh, for really appreciate it. People, go get tickets me. to see Smokeface. Smokefall. Uh, uh, sorry, Smoke really. Face. People, get tickets <laughs> to see Smokefall and uh, uh, go watch the new Star Trek movie when it comes out in the, July. You didn't. We didn't talk. Sorry, I apologize for not asking a lot of Star Trek questions, but I figure Zach is going to do many Star Trek focused interviews over the next few months. I'll answer a lot of them then. Cool. Yeah, we can. you can tack them back onto this if you want. I people. won't be talking about my therapeutic process, likely. <laughs> Probably not. All in right. those interviews. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks man. Bye.
On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Bates Motel reopens on A&E for its fourth season. A modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho, Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norma and Norman suspicious of one another, and their trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as this season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy, and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune in to Bates Motel Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E.